There's a light on the hill from a bush that's burning. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I am your host, John Williamson, and welcome back. This is part two. Uh, of my interview with Pete Enns. So if you didn't hear last week's episode, hit pause on this one, go back, listen to the first part so that this part makes sense. And if you've already heard it, welcome back. Thank you for listening. And this is the second part and conclusion of my interview with Pete Enns on his new book, Curveball, When Your Faith Takes Turns You Never Saw Coming, or How I Stumbled and Tripped My Way to Finding a Bigger God. Love having Pete on. Uh, Pete and his partner over on their podcast, uh, the Bible for Normal People, Jared Bias, are, are two amazing guys who are doing amazing work and uh, do it with humor, which I always appreciate. I think these are conversations that should be fun, and uh, and, and they keep that in mind uh, at all times, and, and they, they make them fun. So check out their work. We'll have all the links in the show notes. As far as our stuff goes, uh, lots more to come. Brand new guests next week. Uh, got some brand new guests that have never been on the podcast before covering different sort of vantage points that we've not covered before. So very excited to introduce some of them to you. Um, But www.thedeconstructionist.com. If you go there, you can see our blog with some new blog posts, uh, all sorts of other goodies on there, our web store, our Patreon, which is completely redone, um, has early access to episodes, uncut, uh, unedited, um, amongst other things. Uh, you guys know, go to, yes, just go to the website. All right. Uh, without further ado, let's get to it. This is part two of my interview. Super fun with Pete freaking ends. I think it's calling to me. And it's a You know, can we talk about the exile here for a minute? Because it seems to us like you broke your promise. Because there is no Davidic king on the throne. The last Davidic king, he was blinded and his three sons were killed. That's Second Kings talks about that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it seems like that promise is now null and void. So what's up with that, O oh Lord? You know, oh Lord, who's always faithful and <laughs> almighty, so you can do anything you want to, and you're faithful, and we're seeing a big break in the system here. That's the kind of stuff that I'm attracted to in the Bible because it validates how our experience affects our theology. And that's that's biblical. It's not every page of the Bible, but it doesn't matter. It's there. It, it's almost as if the authors uh, were themselves uh, struggling with their relationship with the divine and in, in writing uh, in, in, in from the perspective of this is my relationship with the divine and this is this is my struggle. It almost no, no, out. no, John, you're so wrong. They were writing <laughs> unqu- truth that cannot ever be questioned. Yes. <laughs> Even if biblical writers contradict each other, still you can't question it. You just have to do what they say, even if it contradicts other things they say. That's just how it works, right? So, but that's why, you know, I think the cure, you know, not to get off topic here of, of, you know, curveball, but I think the cure to this is what it's been for so many people. I just sat down and I really started reading the Bible and I allowed the questions to arise as I was reading. And, 
you know, by the time you get to chapter six of the Bible and everybody drowns, you start having some questions, you know, or Genesis one and two that have two very different incompatible uh, uh, creation stories. You, you can't help but ask questions. And I think that's a good thing to do. Yeah. And I think, I think you nailed it. Um, when you said earlier, I, I think a large part of it is just this human desire, uh, to, define everything and to understand everything and to put a name to everything. And when we can't do that, our, our default, I think reaction is panic or fear. And I think that you're right. The mystics, I think kind of figured it out where they, they just almost sort of delight in ambiguity and, and, and are overjoyed in the fact that they can't figure it out Mm -hmm. and and that God is undefinable, you know? And, And there's something about, um, Judaism itself, again, not, not to, I, I hate when people make blanket statements about Christianity or Judaism or anything, but let me make a sort of a blanket statement here. It, it, within the Jewish tradition, there is a, a tremendous openness to the ambiguities of Scripture that give you an excuse to explore more deeply. And that has not been part of the Christian model over the past few hundred years. I, I think you're right that, again, the fourfold method of interpretation, the mystical dimension of Christianity that's been there, I would argue uh, since John's gospel, especially, it's, it's really there. Um, you know, that, that is, uh, that's a part of the Christian journey itself. But, you know, we, we forget that. We're, we're trained to almost block that out of our imaginations about God. And, it's it's really unfortunate. I think it's it creates. Okay, what you gain from that is a sense of certainty, a, a sense of stability, which we all want in some level. But what you lose there is, I think, the 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 joy of exploration, where you know, like children, we're trying to figure our, figure our parents out or something. You know, we just get to do that. And it's not if you get it wrong, they'll spank you or punish you or something. It's just a privilege to be able to do that. And, you know, I've become a lot more relaxed over the years about some of these things because I know that I don't know. And mm-hmm. I'm somewhat amused when people claim that they know. I asked somebody like, you know, you know, I don't understand the Trinity. What do you mean you don't understand the Trinity? It's like <laughs> ice and water and steam. It's like, no, you give me an analogy. I said, I don't understand the Trinity. I, I, explain it to me. Well, it's like a three-leaf clover. Is it really like a three-leaf clover? Is that, is that what you're going to go with? So, you know, all, all these things that we talk about are, I think they are steeped in mystery. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think Christ is the mystery revealed. Not revealed in the sense that now we understand the Christ, but the Christ is the mystery that we deal with, right? And I, to me, it's like, I'm so happy that it's not like I'm going to be quizzed in theology one day after I shuffle off this mortal coil. At least I hope not. Yeah, I hope I get at least to see if I am. But if not, that's fine with me too, because this is, you know, all, I just, I really think that all our thinking about this stuff, it matters and I enjoy it. But at the end of the day, it's like, I, I can see God saying, there, there, Pete, that was really a nice try. Um, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about at all. So, um, yeah, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, that's fine that's with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and there's something to, to that where I think a God that I could possibly figure out is probably not an attractive God to follow, you know, like, mm-hmm. especially if we're talking about a God whose uh, love is infinite and, and the term infinite in and of itself is unimaginable. Right. You know, like, yeah, I just, I, I want a God that's so big and so uh, expansive that I can't possibly right. understand the totality of God. Mm-hmm. Maybe I get a taste when, when someone right. loves me, you know. Which is uh, a great analogy because this is all about like tasting. Yeah. Taste and see that he is good. I mean, I think those are really good metaphors in the Bible for expl- uh, describing exactly what you're saying. It's, you know, we, we, we can't like know God exhaustively or even like 80% or 50%. God is an inexhaustible mystery. But can we rest in God without understanding God? And I, so again, those are the things, this is the language I've picked up over the years that have helped me tremendously. It's like, I don't have to, what if, okay, what if God is real and just likes your company, <laughs> you know, and you can sort of be there without having, like with good friends, you don't have to talk all the time, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to make petitions all the time, you just sit there and maybe learn to... um let go of that um, that transactional relationship that we keep up. That transactional relationship with God is something that we understand. That that's something that, that I think that goes to like our base humanities, where it's sort of like karma. You have to do things so good things happen. And you know, what if the universe doesn't work that way? And again, not, I mean, I know next to nothing about quantum physics, even though I devoted two chapters to it in my book, but nobody <laughs> understands fun. this. But, yeah. you know, the, the, the whole, um, the, the mystery of all that is a, I think it's just a reminder again to us that this, this is so above our pay grade. And it's, it's enough just to sort of sometimes be in awe and amazed with all of it without understanding it and let that awe, amazement and awe be a part of communion with God. I know I don't really see the problem with that. I don't have to come up with a definitive answer. And I won't because, well, I can, I can try, but it's going to be wrong on some deep, important level. So I'm not going to get obsessed about it. Well, and, and that approach, I think, takes a lot of the pressure off of us for having, mm-hmm. having to, to, to know the answer. Um, one of the things I definitely want you to talk about, uh, and partially because I love the Beatles is you have this great <laughs> analogy, um, <laughs> uh, where you talk about, and, and we sort of started getting into this a little bit. You talk about, um, historical criticism. And I think one of the things that we take for granted, or a lot of people just never learn is just the fact that the Bible didn't fall from the sky fully formed in its final version. Um, in fact, there's differences between the Protestant Bible and the the Catholic version mm-hmm. of the Bible that include different books or, or extra books, we should say. Um, and, you know, a lot of these were different styles of writings. There's apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic literature. There's, uh, there's um, gene- genealogy, you know, there's mm-hmm. all sorts of different types of writings. And as you mentioned before, there's, there's hyperbole, there's uh, uh, tons of metaphors. And so each, 
uh, document written by a different person or a group of people uh, over a long period of time and, and eventually, you know, became a fully formed bound book. But the way in which we per- approach the way we read it from start to finish is the same. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I, I think that that's a starting place for a lot of us is, is kind of understanding that we have to approach uh, different parts of the Bible in different ways. Right. And, and, and in, in order to understand what the, the original audience would have, how they would have understood it. Right. And also the other thing that I'd love for you to talk about that you mentioned also is I think we also have to go back to uh, our, our Jewish, uh, you know, forefathers. They wrote mm-hmm. the thing, <laughs> you know, Jesus was a Jew. And so I often like to go back and hear, well, what, what do the Jewish scholars have to say about, um, what we call the Old Testament, and you—you you even reference one of my favorites, uh, Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, um, in, you know, a, a big curveball for me, and, and what I mean by that way, I'm talking about this. What I mean by a curveball at all is just just life happens to you, and those experiences are not that fastball down the middle that you know is coming. The ball bends away from you and you miss it. And in order to stay in the game, you have to make an adjustment to your swing, which is sort of making adjustments to our theology that has to happen. And that's a good thing because, you know, God is bigger than just that fastball down the middle that you can hit all the time. So so for me, um, you know, graduate school and studying the historical critical method or methods which I was exposed to in seminary, but didn't really study just because of the nature of the school. Um, that was a big curveball to me because the Bible doesn't act the way I was led to believe that it acts. It's much more complicated. It's very, very messy. Um, there are true contradictions and at least very different perspectives in in both the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. And acknowledging that was a big step. I mean, really just owning that was a very, very big step for me. I mean, I, I tell the story in the book where um, by my second month of graduate school, I came home one day and I was taking courses on Israelite origins, which is like, where did the Israelites come from? And it's much more complicated than the biblical story. Probably it, it contradicts the biblical story in certain places. But I came home and I just parked my bike out back. I went in into the kitchen and I remember just staring at the refrigerator. And what I had been sort of pondering for a few weeks came to the surface. And I just said to myself, I'm not sure that Abraham was a real person. Which is sort of like generally acknowledged in biblical scholars. Like it's not really a contestable point, really. It, it, I mean, it might have been, but it, it reads very differently than just this is an account of a person who lived, whose dialogue we're aware of, and all that kind of stuff. And it just it just really hit me that. And, and the, here's the thing: I didn't go into graduate school a complete idiot. You know, I had read things and I had talked to people and I had professors who would gently introduce us to these kinds of things. But um, all it took was like a month of reading things and listening to some lectures. And that that old model began leaking. The, the boat was leaking pretty quickly. And I had to think about how I wanted to approach this. And 
And thankfully, I was in a place where I could keep an open mind about some things. But it's it's that my relationship with the Bible changed. And I don't, not for the worse, I think, you know, for the better. And, um, you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't count on everybody else understanding that, but this was my existence. This was my reality. This, these were my experiences. And that's how I, you know, I, I began to see things differently and about, you know, the historicity of the Bible and, um, the agendas of the biblical writers, some of which are rather propagandistic. Um, the the as you mentioned before, people writing at different times for different reasons are bound to have differences of opinion on things, and um, and the importance of the exile that drove the Israelites, actually at this point the Judahites, to compile what eventually became the Bible. Um, all that stuff, it was fascinating to me, but it was a very new way of thinking about the Bible. And for people who have been taught the centrality of Scripture for faith, the next step is not just thinking about the Bible differently, but it's thinking about God differently, right? So, you know, if you understand, like, some of the texts on violence, uh, divine violence in the Bible, if you see those, my opinion here, if you see those in their historical cultural context, I I'm I, I don't look to those passages to reveal to me the deep nature of God. I think God is something else. That's my opinion. People will disagree. That's fine. They're wrong. I'm right. But let's, you know. Um so <laughs> yeah. you know uh, I, that those images of God that were given in scripture are highly encultured images of God. And not that my culture is better. We have our own hang-ups, but it's my responsibility, I, I think as a person of faith, to think through, listen, I don't think God's a warrior that kills people and says, take their land. I just, I just don't believe that, and I won't believe it. But it's in the Bible. I know it is, but there are reasons why it's in the Bible. There are reasons why it's there. And I, I respect the fact that the ancient Israelites conceived of God that way, at least at certain times in their history, because that was their cultural influence. They, they all had gods that went to war for them. Now, I think within the Hebrew Bible, you see some pushback against some of those ideas as well. So within the Bible itself, you have movement and change. But looking at the Bible that way was really, that was for me the first real big step toward accepting the responsibility to reevaluate my faith, to interrogate my faith when need be. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I, I think one of the, th- the hangups that, that we have in, in this modern time is that we are, are, are stuck on the u- uniqueness of, of Christianity uh, specifically. And I, I can't speak for other religions because this is what I grew up uh, immersed in, but we, and you talk about this, you address this in the book as well, uh, talking about um, the, you know, geographical influence even, you know, uh, based on the, the di- different invaders coming in and working alongside of the Jewish people at the time, you know, the Greek influence and and mm-hmm. um, and all these things. And, and some of the stories that are borrowed, it, all you have to do is look into, um, you know, guys like uh, Joseph Campbell, Otto Rank, guys who were uh, these mm-hmm. famous mythologists to look that there are some stories in the old Testament that are clearly borrowed from 
older traditions. Right. But yeah. the, the point isn't the originality of it. The point is this, the, the meaning behind the story. And yet mm-hmm. we get hung up on the uh, on things being, they have to be historical fact. Right. And those other cultures, they got it from the Bible. Right? That, that's right. how the argument usually goes. It's like you've got all these flood stories. Well, the oldest one's the biblical story, and that's the right one. That's a historical one. And all the other ones are parodies of that ultimate historical truth, where they get it all mythological and stuff like that. And again, that's the protectionist view of the Bible, but you know, nobody thinks that. I mean, no learned person says that, because the Israelites came on the scene fairly late. And some of these stories were there long before the Israelites ever came on the scene. But they appropriated those stories to speak their theology. And that's why, you know, the biblical flood story is not the same as the epic of Atrahasis, for example, or, you know, what little bit we see from the Gilgamesh epic. It's not, it's not, they're not simply repeating it, but they're appropriating, they're repurposing these myths for different theological concerns. And once you see that, I think it's very hard to unsee it. And then the next thing you think about is maybe historicity isn't the central thing here. Maybe, maybe it's not the, um, the, the purpose of the Bible to establish historicity for the use of apologetics. Maybe that's not what's going on here. It's a thoroughly encultured um, anthology of literature. And that, I mean, my students will say the same thing. It's comforting to them to see the Bible that way because that can speak into our humanity as well, where our views of God are likewise encultured. And, and you know, part of that culture is the Christian tradition as a whole. That's part of our culture. But still, it's, you know, we're, as a friend of mine put it, we're winging it in the spirit here. We're trying to make sense of things uh, intellectually. And um, I think the baseline message that really does come through, at least for me, is how are you treating other human beings? How are you treating other creatures? How are you treating the planet that we live on. I think those are becoming very central questions for me as I try to live out my faith. That that Those are the encultured questions that I come at this faith with. And no, I'm not saying, you know, okay, Moses or others didn't talk about recycling or earth care, <laughs> all right? Yeah. But I do, and we have to. That's our responsibility. And so we're continuing this tradition. We're furthering this tradition along to a point where, you know, if you talk to Pierre Tehard de Chardin and some others like this, the, the point is what the, the omega point, the end of it all, which is where all will be in all. It's, you know, for him, it's the end of the evolutionary process. It could be billions of years from now, but we're all part of this moving forward with the tradition. And I like that because it, it it puts a tremendous responsibility on us to do the very things we've been told we should never do. Use our imaginations. Use, really use our reason. Use our full humanity. This is why I like the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Using our whole humanity to talk about God and to articulate God and to let that affect how we actually live. 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Oh, I love that. Um, we got to spend a little time on this just because it's a fun chapter you put in there. Um, mm-hmm. where you get into all things weird, you know, like a little, a little of the paranormal stuff. So oh, yeah. uh, my other, my other favorite, my other favorite topic. But you talk about um, just. It's sort of like the academia that's uh, that's being conducted and the studies that are being conducted around some of these things like near-death experiences or past lives. And, and of course, as a human being, and since the beginning of time, we've all asked the question, well, what happens after we die? And I think if you're not curious about that, then you're not alive. <laughs> you know, you're not... You're, you're, in, you're in death denial if you, don't, if you don't think about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you do mention a couple of people that, that you, whose work you followed a little bit. So talk about that a little bit. You know, what, what are, what are some of the things being done right now? Some of the studies that are being conducted on this? Well, I mean, the person who really got me into this was Dale Allison, who teaches at Princeton Seminary. He's a New Testament scholar, but he's written stuff on, you know, what we might call the paranormal, um, or parapsychological maybe is another way of putting it. Um, and also, you know, there, and he is the one who, through his writings, introduced me to um, the the uh, the division of um, DOPS. It's, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm fumbling here, but um, uh, University of Virginia has a division that's part of their neuroscience division. It's not like some frat boys in a basement or something. These are. <laughs> PhDs in brain science who study the paranormal. They've been doing it there for over 50 years now. The study of this goes back, I mean, in earnest to the 19th century, but even before that, and these things have been documented since like Plato. You know, people talk about this stuff all the time, and people have had experiences of like out-of-body consciousness or past lives or things like that. And I just feel like, you know, I was never, ever told by anybody you know, your theology needs to maybe incorporate how people have experienced death, what happens at, at very often at, at deathbed scenes where people sit up and are all of a sudden very conscious and they're, they, they're seeing people, they're talking to people, then they fall back down and they die, right? And it's, you know, there, there are so many stories that are just, um, that I find credible, you know, I mean, there are whack jobs out there that make things up just to sell books, but there are other people who have experiences who keep quiet about it for decades because they're afraid people will think they're crazy and they can't really explain it adequately anyway. And, and Dale Allison is one of those people. He's um, he, he's what he calls a thin person. 
there's some people who have uh, a connection, you know, with the, the, the veil between our world and the next, whatever that means. And, um, you know, the Celts talked about thin places and, you know, Dale Allison talks about thin people. And I found that I, I, I know people who have had just classic paranormal experiences. I haven't really, you know, maybe a little bit and when I was younger, but my, I just think I, I just get passed by. Because I'm so left brain, it's like he's useless. Just keep moving. But I know people I trust, and I know their character. And they say, "Let me tell you what happened to me." And I'm like, I, "I can't. I get it." And if see here, here's my bottom line. If um, okay, I'm gonna. There's another big issue I deal with this in this chapter, which I have no business talking about, which is. The mind-body problem. This is a very big philosophical thing. It's as old as Western civilization. And basically, the gist is this. Does our mind exist independent of our physical bodies? Or is it exist solely by virtue of our physical bodies? In other words, when you die, does your mind or consciousness, does that continue? And if... See, if these paranormal things are in any sense true, and some of the stories are just, it's hard to deny what some people say, unless there's a grand conspiracy and people are just pathological liars, right? But I don't think that's the case. But if, if these things are true, it would seem to lend some information to this mind-body problem that maybe consciousness does not depend on our physical existence. And you would think that Christians would say, oh, that's fantastic. There's an afterlife and all that kind of stuff. But the, you know, let the other shoe drop. These things happen to people irrespective of their religious affiliation. Across cultures, across time, across languages, and across religions, including no religion at all. And sometimes people have these experiences and they say, I think I want to explore a life of faith or whatever that might look like for them. But um, see, that's just it. The the curveball for me is, it's one that I welcome, but it's still a curveball what does this near-death experience business and all that, what does that tell us about the nature of God? If these things are true, what is God? And what is God like? And if it's not just evangelicals who have these out-of-body or after-death or near-death experiences, if it's not just them, if it's that you know, if that's that Hindu person over there, right, or the Jew over there, or whatever over there, if if they're all having this sort of experience, it, it, you've got to start thinking about maybe Christianity is beautiful, but maybe that that line drawing that we tend to do and that we find in the Bible itself, maybe that doesn't tell the whole story. Maybe there's more to it than that. And that's that's why I like the the you know the clinical study of paranormal experiences which tries to bring some rigor, some some clinical um boundaries to it. And 
And, you know, UVA, University of Virginia, they've been doing this and people have studied various aspects of this for decades. And these are not evangelicals or people with a religious axe to grind. They just say there are things that happen that science as we know it cannot explain. And and to, to deny th- this, uh, I would say, universal human experience for a long, long, long time is actually not scientific. And, and, and then you have this battle between, you know, the scientific materialists, the only thing that's true is what you can test and what you can see. Then the other saying, we only see a small fraction of reality. And uh, Dale Allison is very good with that as well. He, um, I have in a footnote, uh, an endnote rather, he has this wonderful story he tells about his dog, Ralph. And he says, Ralph knows a lot. You know, when, when um, it gets to be a certain time of day, he knows he's going to be fed. When he, when he sees me stand up to go into the kitchen, he knows he's going to be fed. And he knows I'm going to go to the cupboard. I'm going to open the door. I'm going to take the dog food out. I'm going to put it in his bowl. I'm going to give him water. He knows all that with absolute certainty. But Ralph has no idea where the dog food comes from. He doesn't know what a truck is, really. He doesn't know who made it. He doesn't know what a kibble really is. Like, what am I eating here? He has no, no sense of that. So if you think of knowledge as a circle, right, um, Ralph has like a couple of degrees of that 360 degrees. That's what he knows very, very well. But the rest of it he doesn't know. And, you know, the point is that it's not too different for human beings. We... There's, there are things, you know, the, the entire possibility of knowledge, we have a small sliver of it. And, you know, um, Allison says, it's like, we don't even know what an atom is, really. <laughs> right. You know? Okay, that's pretty important. You know, th- there are many things we don't really know. And some of those things that we don't know are things that we will never know through scientific methods that are not, and rightly so, they're not prepared to do this sort of thing, you know? Um, and these things are just impossible. They can't be, they can't be true. Um, I just, I don't buy that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with many other people, including Dale Allison. I'm not a scientific materialist, even though I love science, which will come through in the book. It just, it can't explain everything. So that opens us up again to the issues of mystery, of unknowing, of not knowing. And the, this, truly incomprehensible existence that we live in and we're just going along for the ride and it's okay. You know, it's, it's, if God is real, it's going to be okay. That's to me, that's the bottom line. And I believe that God is real. I don't understand God. I don't think God is a man hiding behind like the Andromeda galaxy with the beard. I, I think God is in and through everything, but I also think this God is personal you know, um, and I don't, I don't even know what I mean when I say that, but um, whatever it means for God to be personal, it's got to be as mysterious and unfathomable as anything else we talk about God, and, and not personal the way we are, but I think personal in a much deeper, much more pervasive way. And that's that's truly what I believe, and I don't think I'm saying those things to myself because I'm afraid of dying or anything like that. I just, I just, I just think those things are true. See, there you go. Just talking about how God is beyond, uh, <laughs> again, you know, <laughs> how dare I do that? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want God to be small and definable, you know, like, but yeah, that's, well, you can have a God you, like that too. It just will fall apart 
when something unex- when you get those curveballs, folks, that's when that clearly defined deity begins to take some hits. And again, we should be thankful for that because, again, the thing I repeat in the book a few times, we, we get a bigger and better God in 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 the wake of that, and not not bigger and, and not a bigger version of what we already know, but something outside of what we know, and. I honestly, you know, John, I don't know how else to do this, Jesus business. I just, I don't know how else to do this other than simply accept the mystery of God that I get to think about and try to live into as best as I can. See, I, and, and I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. I think, um, the more I, but the more I learn, the less I know, and the more ha- happy I am right. about that, um, because I, I, you know, I want to believe in something bigger than me and to be bigger than me means to be beyond, beyond human, beyond right. anything I can, I can possibly articulate. And yeah. that brings me comfort. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think right. that's a good thing. Right. <laughs> I do too. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's always fun having you on and talking about this. Yeah, thank so, you, John. Yeah. It's I want to encourage people. Too. Let's uh, let's pitch the book. Uh, let's I do that. To go ahead and get it. It's called Curveball: When Your Faith Takes Turns You Never Saw Coming, or How I Stumbled and Tripped My Way to Finding a Bigger God. <laughs> I love that. So uh, go out and check out Pete's podcast too, The Bible for Normal People, and you have the new one, The Faith Faith for Normal faith People. Faith for Normal People, right? We just launched that as as we're recording this. We just launched that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go check that out right now. Um, so go check it out. Everything will be in the show notes. But uh, again, thanks as always for coming on. This was uh, sure, John. A Thank lot you of fun. for asking me. I really appreciate it.
And he 